0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday service at Ananda Village. I'd like to welcome all of our guests and visitors and all those of you who are watching online, especially our guests this week at the Expanding Light who are taking the Ananda Spiritual Counseling Training Program and those who are taking the How to Be a Channel of Divine Grace and Healing Program. We're so glad you could join us and glad that all the rest of you are here, too. Uh, My name is Tiagi Latika, and this is Tiaki Peter, and it's our joy to share Sunday service with you this morning. We're going to start by reading from Rays of the One Light. These are commentaries on the Bible and Bhagavad Gita. And this week's topic is What is the best way to pray? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus Christ and Sri Krishna both advised praying to God as personal, yet both emphasized also that God is above form and that he must be sought ultimately in infinity. As Jesus put it, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Yet he spoke of God constantly as our Heavenly Father. In what is known as the Lord's Prayer, he proposed a very human prayer to the Heavenly Father, asking fulfillment for all our spiritual needs. The Bhagavad Gita explains that man, living as he does in a human body, finds it difficult to worship infinity as though the ego and body didn't even exist. Far better for human beings, Krishna says, to work with reality as we know it than to affirm a reality of which the human mind is incapable of forming any clear notion. Encouraging the devotee in this direction, he says, O Arjuna, be thou a yogi. That is to say, be one who works with, not in rejection of, the energies of the body and the natural tendencies of the mind. Those in the twelfth chapter of the Gita, Arjuna asks, those who, ever steadfast, worship thee as devotees, that is to say... excuse me <coughs> In the twelfth chapter of the Gita, Arjuna asks, those who, ever steadfast, worship thee as devotees, that is to say, in an I-and-thou relationship, and those who contemplate Thee as the immortal, unmanifested spirit, which group is the better versed in yoga? The Blessed Lord replied, Those who, fixing their minds on me, adore me, ever united to me through supreme devotion, are in my eyes the perfect knowers of yoga. Those whose strict aim is union with the unmanifested choose a more difficult way, Arduous for embodied beings is the path of dedication to the absolute The path, that is to say, of jnana yoga Thus, through holy scripture, God has spoken to mankind oh.
1: Our reading this morning is from Whispers from Eternity by Parmhansa Yogananda, and this prayer demand is, With every stroke of my prayer, I move nearer to Thee. Father, swimming in the sea of my cravings for Thee, I find myself beaten back by the winds of severe trials floating on cresting waves of pleasure and pain, then sinking down into the depths of indifference. I still keep looking for thy shoreless shore. With every stroke of my powerful prayer, I move nearer to thee. Never shall I give up. Thou thyself, I know, dost look for my coming. I thought it seems particularly appropriate with all the catastrophic physical dangers that have happened here in the United States in the last few months with three different hurricanes in the southeast and multiple fires here in the northeast that having the best way to pray as a perfect topic for the week it's a curious thing. I work in the medical field, and much of what we spend our time doing is emergency preparedness uh, because we're often faced with unexpected emergencies that we have to deal with as effectively as possible. And one of the things you learn very quickly is it's kind of like Ogden Nash said, when in danger, when in, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. LAUGHTER and we're fortunate here in California, the um, emergency preparedness team every year gives us several scenarios totally unexpected that you can't be prepared for that we have to respond to in sort of mock drills. Uh, our most recent one was a smallpox outbreak in the United States, and how would we deal with that? And we have to go through all the process of getting on the phone and calling the right people and saying how we'd respond to different problems. Another time they picked uh, of all things uh, a tsunami in Lake Tahoe. (laughs) As crazy as that sounds, it's actually a possibility because there are all volcanoes surround Lake Tahoe. One of them could slump off into the lake and a giant wave could go crashing in and create a catastrophe in part of Lake Tahoe. Um, So they often use these things to uh, help teach us about how to react. You know, when I was uh, thinking this week about our topic, uh, the story that came to mind was uh, about one of my spiritual heroes. And this may be someone you've never heard of before. His name uh, was Father Mary, and he was actually a Catholic missionary And in the earlier part of the 1900s, 1901, 1902, he was working uh, with a small congregation on the island of Martinique, the French colony in the Caribbean. And little did he or anyone there know that this very benign uh, friendly mountain at the north end of the island of Martinique which was, they all knew, a dormant volcano was going to come to life. And not only come to life, but in a disastrous, catastrophic way. And here was a devotee whose life was focused on service, serving his parishioners. There's actually pictures of him you can see. He looks like a little ruddy-faced Irishman, wearing a pith helmet in the Caribbean sun with his long black sleeved uh, cassock with a long black skirt, looking kind of physically uncomfortable, but (laughs) he looks like somebody who was really built for service. And that's what he does, he serves his congregation. Well, he was also, and his congregants were caught up in this disaster that occurred there with the explosion of their once thought friendly, Mount, Mount Pele. Um, and it's interesting because Pele in French means bald, bald mountain. But it's also the god of volcanoes in Hawaii, Pele. A great many ironies in this story. And what happened was the volcano woke up and they had some indication that there could be problems, uh, And this was just early enough in the 1900s that communication was not that good. It was primarily by telegraph, via undersea cable. And the undersea cables, if there was an earthquake or something, would often snap. So it was very easy to lose communication with the outside world completely. And so here you had this island of mostly fairly poor people, but somewhat prosperous. And actually the main city of... Uh, Saint-Pierre, which was soon to be completely obliterated by the volcano, uh, was considered the Paris of the Caribbean. It was an incredibly beautiful place, uh, very happy people. And the volcano came to life and began spewing ash on everything, and it became sort of a friendly annoyance. Uh, You had to sweep Everything off your porch every day. Uh, there was kind of ash and grit everywhere. But no one had ever really seen what a volcano like this could do. Most of the things like this had happened far in antiquity. I mean, we know now about Pompeii and Herculaneum, how they got wiped out by um, a pyroclastic flow, a flow of burning ash, uh, thousands of years ago. But people did not understand that in the early 1900s. In fact, when this started happening, their one scientific advisor on the island was their high school science teacher. (laughs) And he was kind of in charge of directing them from a scientific standpoint about what they should all do. And he had a few books, one on volcanoes, and when he read about it, all the volcanoes were the ones in Hawaii, which basically, when they erupt you can walk away from the eruption quite easily. It's, they're slow-moving eruptions, not that dangerous physically. And the one that was happening in uh, in Martinique was actually explosive and catastrophic, totally unexpected. Again, no one had ever seen this, so they had a, no idea what to expect. And I found it very interesting from the standpoint of looking at how different of the leaders on the island would respond to things. The politicians kind of responded like politicians, and the military people responded just like military people. They wanted things ordered and keep everything right to the rules. And the poor science guy was trying to tell people what to do. And a lot of the times he said, I just don't know what to tell you, but I think we need to be very careful and take this very seriously. Unfortunately, the politicians overruled him, and there was an election coming up right at this time in St. Pierre, and so they encouraged people to stay rather than leave. St. Pierre was just right at the foot of this volcano. Um, And things got much more worrisome. There were giant flows of hot, boiling mud. One small village got wiped away. And... um, Many of the uh, people were either too poor or too ill to leave, or they'd been told to stay in Saint-Pierre. So they were kind of flooding into Saint-Pierre, which was kind of the worst place to go. Well, finally it happened, the volcano exploded, and this giant flow of hot, burning ash. And the way you can think about this is it's a 100-foot-tall wall of glowing, burning ash with a sound of like ten jet engines going off right next to you, so loud that if you were shouting at someone standing six inches away from you, they could not understand you. Mm -hmm. And whole trees tumbling along completely ablaze in this giant blowing cloud of fire. And when it erupted, it came down, and it was almost like an atomic bomb got dropped on this little town of St. Pierre, and the 30,000 inhabitants were extinguished in a moment, all killed. only person that survived was, uh, of all things, a prisoner who was in kind of a dungeon that was enclosed. And even he was very badly burned, but he was the only survivor out of 30,000 people, and the whole town was completely obliterated. Well, this brings us to Father Mary because he was committed to staying with his parishioners. They were some miles away from uh, St. Pierre on more of a ridgeline, but they knew they were in danger as well. And he was trying to get everyone into one of the main uh, stone buildings for protection. And, you know, here's a, a fellow who has devoted his life to God um, he's trying to do the best he can in an impossible situation. I mean, they didn't have water, they didn't have medical supplies. Literally, they were giving people water to drink out of the fonts in the sanctuary because that was their only water. And at one point, another one of these giant uh, glowing clouds of fire came off Mount Pele but it came right toward where they were about 10 miles away. You have to understand these clouds move at about 200 miles an hour. So it's this incredibly unbelievable, in fact, I think if you were a medieval Christian, you would see that and say, that's what hell looks like. At one point, as this cloud was coming at them, he was still trying to herd people. Remember the Ogden Nash thing, you know, one in danger, one in doubt. Run in circles, scream and shout. Well, that's what everyone was doing. And he was just trying to get people into the sanctuary where they might be safe. And at one point, he was about 50 yards away from the sanctuary where everyone was staying. And he finally realized that he could not get there in time, and many of the people that he was shepherding could not. And so he just faced the cloud and stuck his arms up and started praying. And at that minute, the cloud sort of abated, stopped, and everything fell out of this cloud onto the ground. And he went back to helping people. And I'm going to come back to that because (laughs) we don't know what his prayer was. But I have a very good idea. (laughs) Well, it goes on that uh, there were several more surges, and finally one came again a few minutes later, uh, and this one was much bigger, much more powerful, and even he realized that we need to just get into the sanctuary if anyone's going to survive. But pretty much everybody was past him, so it was just him, and everyone in the sanctuary was cheering him on, but he didn't quite make it was very badly burned and the next day actually died in the, the sanctuary. Uh, and right after, as he was about to pass, uh, one of the sisters was talking to him and the last things he said was did our parishioners make it and she said yes, many of them inside, are inside the sanctuary. Um, some have died but many made it and he said oh that's wonderful. And then He relaxed and said, excuse me, sister, I must tend to my flock. Mm -hmm. And he expired. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to him when he's back standing on the road, surrounded by his parishioners who were trying to make it to safety. What did he do? How did he pray? I think we could make a couple pretty good guesses of what he didn't do. I don't think he looked at it and said, Well, cosmic ground of being. (laughs) Let's change this so it is better for everyone. I don't think he tried to find a prayer book on him that might have the perfect incantation or prayer. I think he was probably someone who spent most of his time inwardly praying as he served. That was his discipline. And so when this happened... I think it was probably something as simple as, mother, protect them. Mother, protect your children. And in doing that, brought great power and force to this and bought some time for some of his parishioners, Um, a few more minutes for himself. But I thought this was such a wonderful example of how you react to adversity with prayer that has power. You know, I had uh, met the parents of one good friend of mine who actually had known Frank Laubach, the missionary. As many of you know, you've probably heard of Frank Laubach as the one who developed the system called Each One, Teach One for teaching people to read still practiced here in the United States and throughout the world. And actually, because of Frank Lawbach, Frank about a billion people can read, and many of them in their own language, because he went in and helped them devise a written language in their tongue. He became very skilled at that. But he was also a great inner myst- mystic, and wrote a number of books about his experiences of communion with God, where he had as his discipline to be talking with God inwardly, constantly, while he was engaged in his outward activities, where it was this very intimate, constant prayer session. And my friend's parents were actually very young missionaries. This was in the early 1930s. They were training to go to China, of all places, so they were at Yale, learning the Chinese language, and housed with other young missionaries, and they would periodically have guest ministers come through that would help them with their training, and then they'd invite them over to their housing, and um, have a uh, spiritual session together, and then eat dinner. Well, they had Frank Laubach over, and they asked him if he, at their little gathering to pray, would like to lead them in a prayer. And uh, he said, fine. And he was quiet for several minutes. And my friend's parents said that it was a very disconcerting thing because they were very used to traditional uh, Christian prayers. They were in the Methodist church, and so they sort of had standard formulae in how they would pray. And they said it was more like uh, you picked up the telephone and there was a conversation in process, And you started listening to it. And it was like he just, in the middle of a sentence, started talking out loud about his inner conversation with God. And he talked for several minutes, and then at one point he just got quiet. He didn't say amen, he didn't say all the standard phraseology. And they were all very moved by this because it was so unusual, and they could feel the depth of his devotion that it was just transparent for that, And they could see that this is someone who had a constant, loving conversation with God. This was nothing unusual. This was nothing intellectual. This was his reality, that God was his own, very near and dear, and always immediate, always present. I know when I was... uh, first on the path, this is way back in uh, uh, late 1970s, this probably would have been like 1978. I was living in San Francisco finishing my medical training and uh, I had been up here to Ananda a few times, had learned to meditate. I did not have Kriya Yoga yet, our more advanced meditation technique. But I had learned to meditate and I was meditating regularly. And one of the things that I found myself really hungry for was other devotees I could talk to because I didn't know anyone who really did much in the way of spiritual practices. A um, number of people I knew were kind of interested in the philosophy, but no one was really meditating regularly. And So it was always a real treat with, for me if I was around a devotee from any path. And. Uh, I think my two or three little books I had one that Swami had written about visits to the saints in India that I read literally until it just fell apart and I stapled it together and the staples fell out. <laughs> so that was kind of my little devotional world. And one day it was a Saturday morning I actually had the morning off incredibly. Uh, I was sitting uh, reading the paper and drinking some coffee and uh, fellow came to the door and knocked on it, and he was with one of the local Christian groups who would go out and knock on people's doors, and I won't even say which one it was, it doesn't really matter, Um, but he was there to tell me about his faith and his spiritual practices. And, uh, I was so delighted to see anybody. It was another devotee. And it was kind of cold out. He looked kind of physically miserable. He hadn't dressed for the San Francisco weather and, uh, didn't look real comfortable. I said, why don't you come in? I'll give you a cup of coffee and a chat. So he came in. It was actually very nice because he was just telling me about himself and his, his life with God and his life with Christ. And, uh, Very simple but very meaningful devotion. Very much appreciated by me. But at one point, you know, I think part of the way he was trained was then you're supposed to tell people why you should only think the way they do and everything else is wrong. So he launched into, well, that's what's wrong with, you know, Islam and, of course, the Hindus. You wouldn't believe it. They believe there's a 100,000 different gods and goddesses. Well, you have to understand, at that point, I knew enough about the yogic tradition that immediately I said, oh, no, you misunderstand. Really, they see there is only one God, but they see God in all these intimate forms as reflection of who he is. So they can see... God and Mother Nature, in the rain, in their crops, in their loved ones. And so it makes God much more immediate. And I actually said that very well, I thought. And the poor man, <laughs> the poor man went, oh, you know, and it was interesting. And the reason I'm telling this story is that was the, f- the first time I really ever felt I'd made a mistake in talking to someone spiritually. Because I realized where he was, what he was doing was just right for him. And yes, what I said was absolutely correct, absolutely accurate, but it was the wrong thing to say to this poor man. Because it would just be confusing for him. It would probably hurt him more spiritually than it would help. And certainly, I didn't need to say it, but it was still it was still accurate. And One of the things that I took from that is that often as we live our lives, if we're trying inwardly to feel God's presence as we talk to people, as we interact with other people, that we can begin to feel God communicating back to us. I could feel what I would call master's displeasure with what I just did. I know more now, having done this for a number of years, that. Often, when I ask about things, in fact, the way uh, Swami taught us is that if you are praying about something, concentrate your mind here in the prefrontal lobes of the brain, the most superconscious part of the brain. That's the place where we send our prayer out to God. But then we feel for God's response in the heart. And if you're not sure about what you should do in a given circumstance, You can pray about it that way and then feel and say, you know, actually, I'm planning on doing this, Master. What do you think? And then see how that feels. One thing I'll do at home, I have a nice picture of Master with a beautiful, enlarged uh, picture of his eyes that I can see where I'm in bed. And sometimes at the end of the day, I'll be laying there and kind of reviewing my day and thinking, Did I do that right? And I'll look at Master's eyes, and I'll say, "Okay, Master, tell me, did I do that right? And I'll feel in my heart. And if I feel sort of a disturbance or a discomfort, I'll know, oh, there's something I can learn from that. I remember uh, with Swami, particularly like in the last decade of his life, that very often the way he would encourage me to change is when I'd be talking to him. I would, you know, I was taking care of him as a physician. I would say something, and he wouldn't say, Oh, that's wrong, or Peter, you're being an ignoramus, or No, no, that's not the right thing to do. Think about it this way. All that would happen would be that his energy would withdraw a little bit. And if I'd really blown it, I might see a shimmer of a microfacial expression. Um, kind of, and actually, this is what I usually would see would be just a tinge of sadness. And he wouldn't say anything. I would just see this quick little glimmer. And I'd go, oh, I blew it. And But it would always give me something to go home and ponder. To go home and meditate on is, here's my spiritual teacher who has given me advice. And he didn't do it by saying anything. He did it by having it, so I felt it in my heart. Remember when we pray, Master said, do not pray as a beggar. Remember, God is just waiting to give us everything we ask for. In fact, Swami's one bit of advice, I always appreciated this, he would often say, you know, Particularly as Kriya Yogis doing a powerful yogic technique like this makes you very magnetic, and when you pray, you will get what you ask for. So, just be careful about what you want, because you're going to get it. And he'd always say that with a little twinkle in his eye and a little, a little laugh. But it's really very true advice that when we do our meditative practices and. I would just encourage everyone here, if you're someone who is not meditating, learn to meditate. And meditate 10, 15 minutes a day. You know, we actually have good scientific evidence now that shows us that even meditating as little as 12 to 15 minutes a day has tremendous effect on both your brain structure and function as well as your other body physiology processes. Um, On top of that, you get spiritual benefits as well. If you're someone who is now meditating, but you're not doing Kriya Yoga, learn Kriya Yoga. It is the thing that helps you become the most powerful communicator with God and God's love and energy. It will actually help remove all the obstructions. And really, the problem in our relationship with God is not that God isn't trying to communicate with us, it's that we have impediments in the way. And so when we do a powerful technique like Kriya, it just begins to open these windows of communication so we can feel what God is trying to tell us, that we can hear God's whisperings in our mind and our soul and know the right things to do with our lives, and change in the ways that's most helpful. So I would just like to close with that, is remember, if you're meditating regularly, make sure you remember that the reason we're meditating is for attunement. Swami often told us that during Master's life, this is what he talked, this, talked to with the serious disciples, that they needed to work on attunement. Attunement with him as the guru and attunement with God. That this was the way they would make the most rapid spiritual progress. So when you're at the end of meditation, make sure you spend your time (coughs) praying. And what should you pray for? Well, Swami said the most important things to pray for are your attunement and your realization. In fact, he would often say, I don't really ever pray for myself. Even in times when I'm physically very uncomfortable or sick or sort of bad things are happening to me. I will pray so I can serve other people, but um, won't pray for myself on sort of minor things. And I thought that's very, uh, a very good templ- template for us as devotees. So, bless you all.